continue in the book of Judges. So if you would, go ahead and open to Judges chapter 7, if you would. Judges chapter number 7. Judges chapter number 7. And we're going to continue what we started last week looking at Gideon and the process and the whole uh, account of Gideon and how God used him to deliver uh, the children of Israel uh, during their oppression. And in the book of Judges, chapter number 7, I'd like to read verses 17 through 22, if we can. So Judges, chapter 7, verses 17 through 22 to start with. It says, and by this point, just so you know, Gideon has now trimmed, I guess God has trimmed down Gideon's army down from basically 32,000 to where now they're down to 300. So there's only 300 of them left. And it says this, and then there's 135,000 Midianites, by the way. And verse 17 says, And he said unto them, them being the 300, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me Then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And three companies, that's three companies of a hundred each, blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the hosts ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And we'll stop there because a lot of fun names of towns there coming up, okay? It's hard words, okay? But we'll get into this passage and, uh, after we pray. Father, I pray you be with us tonight. Lord, thank you, Lord, so much for for us being able to sing these songs, Lord, as, Lord, especially that last song we got to sing, Behold What Manner of Love That You Have For Us, Lord, that truly, Lord, is, it's just an awesome blessing to be called a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God. And, Lord, that's nothing of our own merit. And, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for that. And, Lord, we just thank you for the blessings that we mentioned of people being able to take off the prayer list. Lord, we know we have more people on it. But, Lord, I just pray you'd be with all those needs. Just make yourself real, Lord. And, Lord, we do pray for your will to be done. Lord, we have desires. We have wants. We have things that we want to see happen a certain way. But, Lord, we ask for your will to be done. And, Lord, for these next few moments as we sit here in this room, Lord, I pray you just give us some some rest physically, Lord, also mentally. And, Lord, may we just receive with meekness your word tonight. Lord, what you have for us for this account of Gideon and the 300. And, Lord, I just pray you just help us to calm ourselves, calm our minds. And, Lord, just pray that your Holy Spirit might truly work in us and through us, Lord. And again, Father, thank you so much that you love us enough to even care, Lord, to speak to us, to care enough to love us, to care enough to see us be better followers of Christ. Lord, thank you for everyone here. I pray you bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. We started looking at last week with the idea of Gideon and just kind of catching you up, just a little bit of a a regroup or a rehash, if you would. We started looking at Gideon in chapter number 6. And and we said when you read the book of Judges, it pretty much that cycle of sin where they obey God, they're at peace, then they fall into idolatry. Now you have to remember they're in idolatry with a lot of other people in the land that they didn't drive out when they went into the promised land with, 
with Joshua. And, well, Moses led them up to there, and Joshua took them over. And they didn't drive out all the all the ites you read about in the Bible. They didn't drive them out. And what I always find very horrible is that they were willing to live with and tolerate not just people that worship false gods, but people that had very immoral behaviors. We talked about sacrificing children and sacrificing people. It's a really horrible situation that they tolerated and put up with. And by them living there long enough with each other, what happened is they fall into their idolatry, and then God, because of them worshiping idols, brings them into sin, brings them into, excuse me, doesn't bring them into sin because they're sin, brings them into oppression, and have different people oppress them, and then they cry out to God, God raises the deliverer, and they do it again. But in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, after all these things have happened, these first three or four judges, and God's given them peace, and God's going to deliver it, it says, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And again, that just reminds me of my life. I do I obey God, I get away from God, I get overwhelmed by sin, I cry out to God, God forgives me and restores me, and I start the horrible process over and over again. And so we see that. But there's something different about their oppressors this time, as we read in chapter 6. Now they're oppressed by a people called the Midianites. The Midianites were not like any other enemy that they've ever faced. It talks about the Midianites in chapter 6. It says in verses 3 through 6, it deals with the idea that they were innumerable. It says they're like grasshoppers. There was just tons of them. I mean, everywhere you look. But there was a difference about this enemy. All other enemies had kingdoms, had kings, had a presence in their life. They knew where their cities were. They knew who they were. But the Midianites were nomads. They would raid. So what they would do is when the children of Israel would get through and it come to harvest time with their crops, the Midianites would come, these people of war would come, and they would steal all of their crops. They would steal their livestock, and they would leave them basically with nothing to eat, nothing left to do anything. They would rob from them, steal from them, and then leave and not know when they're coming back. Now, by the way, what a horrible enemy that would be. It'd be one thing to say, yeah, over in this city right here is an enemy, but to not know where the enemy's coming from, not to know when the enemy's going to come, to constantly live in the fear is, when is it going to happen? Are we going to fall prey to it again? It says they got to the part where they're in the promised land, but they're actually living in caves. Like they're hiding. They're not out in the big well-watered plains and doing that. By the way, that reminds me a lot of sometimes of my sin. Sometimes there's a glaring sin in my life, but I'll be honest with you, there's some things in my life that if I'm not careful, they sneak up on me because I never really get the victory over them. And you ever sometimes wonder, I just wonder when that's going to pop up again. Maybe it's something like bitterness. Maybe it's something about saying the wrong thing. Maybe it's something about anger. Maybe it's something about looking at things we shouldn't look at or listening to things we shouldn't look at. You know, you ever say, well, I'm not going to watch that show anymore because that show's bad. The next thing you know, the next day later, you're like, hey, there's that show again. You're watching it or you're doing it again. Because it's almost like a Midianite. It almost kind of like it sneaks up on you. And that's what happens. And so the children of Israel are in the promised land, but they're poor and they're very fearful and they feel very much conquered or enslaved. So what happens? They've had this for about seven years. Always laugh. Why does it take them this many years to cry out to God? So after seven years, they finally cry out to God. And then you get the account as we looked at in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 6 where they cry out to God, and God raises up Gideon. Now, Gideon, when you think about it, if you heard about Gideon in, the, in Sunday school growing up, you probably think of this big, robust warrior, this mighty man of God that would just go out and just slay people, kind of a Samson-like person. Gideon was nothing like that at all. 
Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh, which at that time was the poorest tribe of all of Israel. He was not only from the poorest tribe, he was from the poorest family in the poorest tribe. So he was poor to the poor, if that makes sense. Not only that, it talks about Gideon in chapter 6, verse number 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under, and sat under an oak, which was in Orpha that pertained to Joash. And it says, And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So instead of this robust man of war, you know what Gideon's doing? He's actually going through his wheat in a wine press. You say, what's the big deal with that? When you did threshing of wheat, you normally did it out in the open in a big open area so the wind and everything could do it. But Gideon's so scared of the Midianites coming and taking what he just got through reaping and harvesting. He's doing it very much in closed quarters by the wine press. Because if you notice, he says he's doing it to hide from the Midianites. And then I love how you almost got the humor of God here in verse number 12. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, once again, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, Okay, God, who are you talking to, mighty man of valor? I'm hiding in the cave because I'm scared they're going to steal my wheat. Okay? And we said, looking at that, is this. We have to understand that God doesn't look at you where you're at today. God looks at you as far as where he, what he could do with you and where you could be at tomorrow. Because here's the problem, and I'm not going to focus on this long. A lot of us never get out of where we're at spiritually in our spiritual growth or lack thereof because we see our limitations today, and we never get past that instead of getting to the point where God says, but I couldn't have you doing this. You know a perfect example of that? Moses, burning bush. Moses gave every excuse in the world why he could not lead the children of Israel. Is there more of a powerful presence in the Bible than Moses? I mean, you just say his name Moses. You think of holy, this thunderous Ten Commandments thing. Moses, yeah, Charleston Heston, you think, you think of this thing? Moses had a stuttering problem. Moses basically looked at God and said, send anybody else. Send anybody else but me. I can't do it. And so we see Gideon here, and God says, okay, this, uh, you're the man, this is what I want to do. And so Gideon asked for a sign, and we see it. We read through verses 18 through 24, how he does a sign, and God reveals himself and his might to Gideon. And Gideon gets really excited. And then you remember the first test. God says, okay, I'm going to test you, Gideon. I'm going to test you to see if you truly have faith in me that I'm going to be with you. And I don't know if you recall it, but he tests him in verses 25 through 32 of chapter 6. And he tells him, he, he says, I want you to go into town and the altar made to Baal, I want you to tear it down. Now, by the way, you think, well, what's the big deal with that? Gideon's about to 300 guys just annihilate 135,000 Midianites. Well, here's the thing. If he couldn't obey God in the small thing, what appeared to be small, he sure enough ain't going to obey God in the big thing. But can I tell you something? Him tearing down that idol was a big thing. You know why? His father was Joash. You know who was the high priest of Baal at the time? Joash. He told him, he said, before you will truly follow me, I need to see if you're willing to tear down the idols that your father put up. And when you think about that, that's a pretty big deal. He says, your dad put up this idol. You're going to defy even your dad, which means you're going to obey God rather than man. That's a pretty tall task. That's more than just going and grabbing a rope and throwing down a statue. And we see here, and he talks about this, and his, his, his dad's the one that built it. 
And we read in verses like 30 through 32, so they come out the next morning, all the servants do of Joash and the servants of Baal, and they said, who done this? And they found out that Gideon did it. And then they all get really upset, and they said, hey, let's kill him. Let's kill Gideon. Now, by the way, if you're Gideon and you hear that they want to kill you, you're thinking, how am I going to deliver my people, you know, if this is not going to happen? And I love how in Scripture, in verse 31 of chapter 6, it's a pretty awesome verse. Because he says, And Joash said unto all them that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Now you say, what's the big deal with this? The city wanted to kill him, but his dad defends him. Now you say, well, what's the big deal with that? That means this. God showed his presence in the life of Gideon and his power in the life of Gideon for you. Everyone on the battlefield, you know why? God changed the heart of his father because Gideon was willing to obey. And while Gideon's tearing down this altar, his father, I really believe, turns to God. I really do. And he not only defends him, he says, hey, do that. Hey, I'm really going to do that. And, and I had a couple things we looked at last week. I said, this, don't wait for the support of people to do what's right. Don't wait for everybody to support you. When you know something to do right, don't wait for everyone else's affirmation for you to do it. Just do it. Do right and allow God the opportunity to change people's hearts. You ever want to do something that you know is right to do, but you're like, it's going to offend this one, offend that one, offend that one, offend that one. And so what do we do? We kind of wait till it really won't bother them that much, and then we do it. Gideon didn't do that. Because Gideon obeyed God, God changed the heart of his father. And you know what? If we just do right, we can allow God the opportunity to change the heart of people. And I said this, and this is big in my notes, and I mentioned it last week. I said this, whenever you compromise God's word in order not to offend, not to offend friends or family, you're limiting God from being able to change the heart of those people. Whenever you compromise God's word in order not to offend friends or family, you are limiting God in his way of changing the hearts of those people. Just imagine if Gideon says, hey, I'll follow you to battle, but I ain't touching dad's idol. I ain't touching dad's idol. God may have gave Gideon the victory, but guess who wouldn't be in heaven with Gideon? His dad wouldn't. And because Gideon did what's right, God changed his heart. And I try to encourage you tonight, is that, and encourage you last week is this. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. There's a lot of people that are obnoxious Christians. Okay, that, that fan club does not need any more friends. Okay? But sometimes we have to understand that God can change the hearts of those people in our lives, not by us being obnoxious, but us just not compromising God's word. And we talked about that last week, and I made friends last week. If you don't know how I made friends last week, you can listen to it. I just kind of threw this out there. If you've got family that comes visit you, stand for God, stand for your beliefs, and go to church. Don't miss church because you've got family visiting, because what you tell that family that's visiting is, Jesus is something I can do when it's convenient. When you're sitting around the table with family and friends that aren't Christians, don't say, well, I guess we'll just skip the prayer tonight. Because you're letting them know that God's a take-it-or-leave-it God in your life. Stand for God and give God the opportunity through your testimony to change the lives of those people. To change the lives. And we saw that in Gideon doing that. So anyhow, we saw all that, and then you get on to the verses later that we love a lot. And so I kind of find it's funny. God changes the heart of Gideon's father. God bless him. And Gideon's like, okay, great. I still need a sign. So you get the end of the verses in verses 30, excuse me, 33 
down through verse 40, you get the famous Gideon fleece prayer. And he says, okay, God, when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be wet, but I want all the ground to be dry from the dew. So he wakes up in the morning, all the ground's dry, the fleece is wet. Gideon probably had this thought, well, a fleece is made of wool. It's going to hold moisture more. Sun probably baked off all the grass. Okay, God, let's flip-flop that. I mean, that's what I would have thought, okay? I would have tried to scientifically prove that there's no way God did that. And then they said, let's flip it. So the next morning, the fleece is dry as a bone, and it says all the grass around, as far as Gideon could see, was wet. It was soaked. So Gideon's like, okay, I'm good. Okay, (laughs) let's go, God. All right, I'm good. And so we see that, and we started talking a little bit, and we'll dive into it. We see how in chapter 7 they start to go into battle, and uh, we start to see where there's only 135,000 Midianites, okay? Bad guys, only 135,000 of them. Now, and when you got the other side of it over there, you've only got 32,000 of Gideon's army, okay? 32,000 of Gideon's army, okay? So not a lot, not a lot for there. And we started looking at this, and we looked at the idea of how things started to, to dwindle down. So eventually we get down to, we eventually go from 32,000 down to uh, 10,000, from 10,000, I need to know zero, from 10,000 down to 300. Okay, and we'll go back and look at that just in a little bit. So at the end of the day, you've got Gideon and 300 going against 135,000 warriors. And by the way, I'm not sure all of Gideon's 300 were warriors, by the way. Most of them were scared farmers. Honestly, that's what most of them were. So they're kind of really out of their ballpark. So I want us to look at the idea of how 300 defeated 135,000. Now, when you look at that, it seems very impossible, doesn't it? It seems very illogical. But God did what he said. How? And this is where I want us to get to tonight. How did 300 defeat 135,000? You're like, Phil, the answer is pretty simple. You had me drive out here tonight. The answer is God. Yes, I got that. But how did God use them? It's in chapter 7, in verse number 21. This is how God used 300 to defeat 135,000. And there they stood, every man in his place, round about the camp. You say, what do you mean? How did 300 defeat 135,000? Every man was in his own place. Every man was where he was supposed to be. He was in the right place. And you say, well, I don't understand that. I mean, they were small. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. Kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that says this, but if God be for us, who can be against us? You know what? This 300 was outnumbered. They were outmanned. They were outgunned, outexperienced, out everything. It kind of reminds me, too, of us today. We live in a world today that is full of what? Immorality, of sin, of vices, of racism, of hatred, of religion, of selfishness, of entitlement. And all that doesn't seem to be getting better for us, does it? It seems to be getting more. It kind of feels like spiritually we're getting smaller and smaller. And what the world we live in today is getting bigger and bigger. And it's hard to come against that. And, you know, you think to yourself, you know, ever wonder to yourself, well, how can I as a believer have victory in my marriage? How can I as a believer have a successful relationship with my family? How can I as a believer um, have victory in my temptations, in my trials, on my job, in my relationships, in the things that you face? How can we do that? How can we be like the 300, be smaller, but have victory over what basically seems to be too much for us? 
Because I'll just be honest with you. The world, the flesh, and the devil is too much for me. You say, well, you're Pastor Phil. Well, that and 50 cents still doesn't buy you a Coke, okay? Everything out there and everything inside of this body right here is too much for me on my own. So God uses himself, but God uses every one of us being in our own place to help us through that. You say, what do you mean? God has an army, so to speak, and it's you right here. It's the local church. And God uses that New Testament local church. And you say, Phil, what do you mean? You read the verse that every man was in their own place. What I'm trying to tell you is this, is that in this local church, there's a spot for you, there's a function for you. He's given every person in this room talents. He's given every person abilities. And can I tell you, there's no accident you're part of the local body of Christ here. There's no accident. You ever sometimes say, how in the world do we end up here? It's not, it's not that bad. Okay, how do I end up here? Because God, for this time, said, hey, this is the place you need to stand. This is the place you need to stand for me. You know, there's people in this room that God may have you here at this church, at this season of life, to help somebody else that's coming to this church for whatever season of life they're facing. And by us standing together, you're going to be more of a help to them than probably I'll ever be standing up here preaching and preaching over and over. Because every person has a function in the body of Christ. Every person has a position in the body of Christ. We read about that. We studied that in our Sunday school series talking about I am a church member. What does that mean to be part of the body of Christ? Is that we all have talents. We all have abilities. We're all part of the body of Christ. Let me give you just a little example, just like part of my part. I get excited on Saturday evenings. You know why? You know why I get excited on Saturday evenings? I get excited because I know in just a few hours... I get to come to this place, and I get to share what God shared with me. I get to share it with you. And I get pumped on Saturday nights. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I'm scared out of my mind. I will tell you that, too. Last Sunday, I was not real excited to get up and share last Sunday. If you think last Sunday was fun, wait till we finish this second part of that when we get to verses 24, 25. And I don't know if you're at ahead. Verse 26 is pretty big in Hebrews 10 also. So I get excited you know why? Because I get to come be with the 300. I get to come be with you guys and worship God with you. And, and it's not just worship God with you. It's get to share possibly with people that are lost. People that don't know if they're going to heaven. People that are hurting. People that have got church hurt. People that have got hurt uh, spiritually and all these different things. And, you know, to see God work. And to understand that and understand hopefully what I'm saying here about being in your place and being active in your place. I've shared this with you, and I'll give you the real quick version, I think. At 16 years old, I felt God leading me to become some sort of either preacher or teacher of the gospel. I really felt God leading my heart at 16 years old. That didn't come to fruition, if you would, as far as being a pastor in the form of that, until August 4th, 2013, here at Emmanuel. That was my first Sunday of being pastor. Now, a lot of y'all are probably thinking, what were we thinking, you know, if you were here during that time? But you know what? That means this. For 19 years, God had a process for me. But can I tell you something else? And please, this is not a prideful thing. This is glory to God. Please don't just lose that. Where I was at 16, where I am and where I was August 4th, 2013, I wouldn't been there 
if I didn't fulfill verse 21 of chapter 7 of actively being in my place where God wanted me to be. When I went back to Stone Mountain Baptist Tabernacle, that's no longer even a church now in Stone Mountain, Georgia. See, I've been in Georgia longer than some of y'all think I have. Still don't like the thing. Anyhow, um, you know what the pastor told me? When I said, I feel like God's leading me to preach. He said, great. I want to see if you're going to be a servant. I said, cool, man. You tell me what to do. I'm thinking, let's let it go. Let's do it. He says, great. I need somebody to clean the building, scrub the toilets, uh, sweep, vacuum, mop all that stuff. I need you to make sure. I need that done every week. You think you can knock that out? Yeah. Yeah, I can do that. He says, and by the way, when you get through cleaning everything on Saturday night, I need you to go through here, you know, because church people are really great about taking a hymnal and throwing it wherever. I need all the hymnals straightened up really nicely. We don't do that. You know, straighten everything up really nicely. I want it good. He said, you know, I don't want to look around and see people having to search for it. You know, go ahead and make everything look really good. He says, you see trash, pick up the trash. And he said, and there's another great thing you get to do. He said, you're going to start cutting the grass, trimming the bushes, and weed eating. And you know what I said? Great. I had no idea that that's not what a pastor is supposed to do. Baloney. The servant. So I had to learn then, if I can't be a servant at 16 and serve privately, I'll never be able to write heart and spirit to serve publicly in that way. So I got to do that. And for a solid year, I got to do that. I got every week. I mean, there's nothing like scrubbing toilets. We had a Christian school, too. So we had a lot of people going in and out. Okay, so it was a lot more than we got here. Okay? And there's fun stuff I won't tell you about. But anyhow, all this kind of stuff we got to do. So then he also, after I started doing it, he says, great. He says, you've hinted uh, about doing some ideas of reaching out to the community. Whatever you want to come up with, let me know. I said, great. I'd love for us to start a bus route. He says, great. You want to start a bus route? You start it. You raise the money to pay for the gas for the bus. Every snack, everything you're doing comes out of your youth fund. We didn't have anything youth fund. So me and about five or six other teenagers, and under my dad being the driver of this little short stubby bus, the short bus, we would go pick up kids, and we would bring them, and we would have children's church for them and teen church for them, Sunday school for them, do all that stuff. And I learned that there. I really think to myself, Lord, please bless those poor kids that listened to me the first few times I taught. I know I had to beat some, them had to be some horrible lessons, you know. I mean, I feel that way now. I can't imagine what it was when I was 16, 17 years old. So I did that for a while. Then my pastor came up and said, great. He says, we have a vacancy now. Um, you get to be, this is senior year of high school. You're the youth pastor of the youth group. That sounds really cool. It is not really cool. That meant every Wednesday night, I had to get up, I had to have a lesson. We had to do music, I had to do game, I had to plan activities. That sounds really cool. But here's the problem. God taught me a lesson at 17 that has really helped me now. I can't be on Wednesday night in front of my peers when I'm not when I'm going to school with them five days a week. Can't do it. I can't be one way, talk one way, act one way, and get up and talk about being godly on Wednesday nights. And so I had to learn then, you know what? God didn't say, hey, you're going to get to be a preacher or whatever time. God used all of that. And what I'm trying to tell you is this, and like I said, it's all for the glory of God. Before we'll ever be what God wants us to be, we have to understand we just have to be what God wants us to be today. Be in your place today. Whatever that is, whatever that responsibility is, be in your place today. I wrote this in my notes too. I don't study to teach and preach for you. I don't study the Bible to teach and preach for me. 
But that is a pretty big perk. You know why I study when I get to preach and teach? Because I want God to take my feeble mind and talents and effort, and I want him to do with that small thing the same thing he did with 300 and do it in a miraculous way. Can I tell you, when God does great things in our services, it's got nothing to do with me. It's God taking that little bit that we're willing to offer him and said, now look what I can do with it. One of my favorite songs in the hymn book is Little as Much, When God is in it. Love that song. And what God can do with that, and God can do something miraculous. Why do we do the things that we do? Because hopefully God can take and do it. I, I thought about this. You know, just the other day we did the uh, baby dedication with, for, for Helen. You know, you think to yourself, why would I sit here? And I and actually for a split moment did, Sunday morning. Why would I count 910 pennies <laughs> in a jug? It's not just so Will and Leanna can have some relic they look at later and think, oh, that was really cool of Phil to give us that. No, why? Because I want God to take something as cheap as a mason jar with $9.10 in it. I don't want every time they go by and look at that and every time they take a penny out and everyone else has had the opportunity, given me the opportunity and that blessing to do that with your children. I want God to take that small, little, meaningless thing and do something huge with it. Do something huge with it with just a bottle full of pennies. That's what I want God to do. And it's because we're not doing it for us, we're doing it for him. And can I say this? Not only did they stand in the right place, they participated. That's huge. Now understand this, and take this the right way. A lot of people feel like they're doing God a favor by just showing up. Not just showing up, but by participating in that. Look what it says back in chapter 7, verse uh, 20. So we know they said in verse 21 they stood in one place, but look in verse 20. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So they participated. They didn't just stand there. All right, Gideon, go ahead. We ain't doing that, though. We're here with you, but we ain't doing it. No, they participated in it. And you know what? So I get excited because this is the place. What I'm doing now, this is the place for now. That God wants me to be. So I'm going to be here and I'm going to blow that trumpet and I'm going to break that pitcher and I'm going to let that light shine. I'm going to be actively involved. Let me ask you a question. Where's your place in the body of Christ here? And are you just in the place? Are you active? And whatever you do, from whatever you think is small to whatever you think is really important, are you blowing the trumpet? Are you letting the light shine? Are you breaking the pitcher? Are you doing those things that say, hey, I'm here, I want, to be involved. And I'm excited about it. I won't lie to you. There's a lot of times, almost, almost every time, I get up to speak, I'm excited, and I am terrified. I am terrified. Now, why do you think the messages last so long? It takes me a while to get calmed down, really, is what it does. And I have normally a whole lot of notes. But, <laughs> you know, but that's what it is, because I'm excited about it. This is because I take it seriously. Now, let me help you with something, because I've, I've come across people like this before. They really won't miss me down there. They really don't need me down there. Can, can I tell you something? We don't win the battle spiritually as a local church. We don't win the battle spiritually because we need you. We don't win the battle spiritually as a church because you need me. We win the battle spiritually as a church you know why? 
because God chooses to use us. These 300 had nothing. But the greatest thing they did is they had a God that says, I've chose you guys to be the ones to annihilate them. It's not about who we are. It's about what God wants to do with us. And God chooses. And to me, that's, to me, that's why I take this so seriously, what I do here. And when I teach Sunday school and those things. Because for this time period, and I don't know when that time's going to be up. There's going to be a day I'm not, God's not going to want me doing this. But I take it seriously because that means at the moment God has chosen me to do this. Whatever you're doing, you're teaching Sunday school, you're ushering, you're cleaning, whatever it is you do in this church or for this church, whether it's in the building or outside the building, for this time God has chose you to do it, it's a place we ought to take seriously. Whatever it is he's asked us to do, because there's going to be a day he's not going to have us do it anymore. It's just that's what's going to happen. And I know what I want to do, I want to encourage you tonight is this. I want to encourage you, and you say, Phil, how in the world is this message encouraging? I really want to encourage you with something tonight. Find your place in the body of Christ. Be there. Be faithful and be active. Be faithful, be in your place, and be active in whatever it is. You say, well, I don't really know my place. Pray and ask God to give you a place. And you pray and you come to me and say, Phil, I want to help out. Hey, I would love to show you things. We have needs more than you can think of. And by the way, not all the needs are a public upfront thing. Some of you are like, thank you, God, because I have no desire to be up front. But, you know, when you think about this, we all have a place that God wants us to be. But there's a flip side of that coin. If I'm not in my place and I don't necessarily care, then God's not going to use me. Yeah, I have the right attitude, right spirit. Here, here's something that I've learned, and I really almost didn't want to say this tonight. It doesn't matter if I preach for 15 minutes, and I know that's never happened. It doesn't matter if I preach for 15 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. If your heart's not in it, I don't get you anyway. It don't matter if it's 15 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. It doesn't matter because if your heart's not in it, you're either in or you're out. And you know, I really believe something about our church. I believe it's a great church. I do. Some of you have been at other churches and other things in your life, I tell you, God has really blessed our church. And it's a great church, and I really believe it. But can I tell you something? This church is not great because of its pastor. It is not great because of its buildings. It is not great because of its programs. It is not great because we're financially doing okay right now. Our church is great right now because we recognize the head. And that's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the head. And that's why this church is great. And when this church ceases to see Christ as the head, boom. Careful, there's a phrase in the Bible, Ichabod. There's a lot of churches today that still meet Sunday after Sunday, but Ichabod's written across the door. It means it's death. It's done. It's just going through the motions. But you know what I do think about this? Because Christ is the focus point, focal point, you know, I think that's great. And I tell you here, I am so thankful. I know in the history of our church, Many of you that have been here for a lot of years, you've seen some lean years. <laughs> you've seen some lean years and some tough times. But you stuck with it. And you stuck with the attitude is that we want to obey God. We want to be in our place. We want to be in our place. We want to honor God. We want to do it for Christ. And can I tell you, it's all about doing it for Him. It's all about that. But can I encourage you with this? We don't need to be complacent with how well God has blessed our church. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I love our church. Our church could be better. It could be better. 
It could be better in certain ways. We could do more in certain ways. There's certain things that we could do if, if, if we were willing to do it, if God wants us to do it and we were willing to do it. And I have to remember sometimes that, you know, as a believer, I don't clock in and clock out as being a Christian. Well, it's time to go to church, clock in. Time to not be a Christian, clock out. But I want to encourage you, you're going to come this Sunday, I hope. Okay, you're going to come to church Sunday. Okay, all right. Why don't you determine, why don't you determine on Saturday night? Let me do that. Why don't you determine Saturday night that you're not just going to come and be in the building Sunday morning? You're not just going to come and, and throw your offering in the plate. You're not just going to come and sing the songs. You're not just going to come and shake hands. You're not going to just come and do whatever ministry it is you're going to do. But by the grace of God, you're going to realize that there's a spot for you, a purpose for you, a design for you, a direction for you, and it's all for the glory of God. But if you ain't here, you miss it. You miss it. And it's the glory of God to stand in your place. And some things I want us to see real quick here as we close up. Some things about this 300. Okay? First thing I see about the 300, I see the choosing of it. Now, when you choose of it, they're very divinely selected in that. Because if you remember in verse number 2, what happened? There's 32,000 of them. So right now you got, what I say, 4 to 1. They just got to kill four of them for every one of them. And what does God say? He says, tell those. He said, if I let you win with 32,000, you're going to think you did it on your own. So tell everyone that's scared to go home. Tell everyone that's scared to obey, scared to get involved, scared of the fight to go home. And only 22,000 went home. Okay, so after that, he says, now the, by the way, he says, you got another thing you want to do. 10,000 is too many. So what I want to do, I want to put them through a test to see if they're mentally prepared for what they're going to face. And they go down to the river, and he says, everyone that puts their weapon down and gets on their face and starts putting their water up to their mouth, and they start going like that, they're not ready, they're not prepared to go into battle, send them home. Only use the ones that are prepared and on the lookout for the enemy that could come at any time. Well, um, only 9,700 failed the test. So... You went from 4 to 1 to where God says, okay, I know you got 13 to 1 odds here, but tell the ones now that not just are afraid, but the ones that fail when testing comes, and that's a whole message in itself, that when testing comes, we fail the test. Now, you're looking at roughly, if I did my math right, somewhere between, there's 450 Midianites for every one of the 300. <laughs> that sounds fun, doesn't it? I wouldn't want that in nursery. Can you imagine that going on with something else? Hey, you're working the nursery today. Hey, Miss Kathy, we got something for you to do. We just got 452-year-olds and under. There you go. I mean, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Yeah. So now God says, here's the choosing of the 300. Here's what I got. These are ready. And I see the choosing, but then I see the character of this 300. And this is really where I want us to get that tonight. These 300 were 300 of faith. And we're not going to look at it. But man, you read chapter 7, verses 9 through 15. Gideon and the 300 are there. And Gideon takes a friend with him, a spy, and they go down to spy out the Midianites. And in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 7, it says they're down there and they get really close. And there's some Midianite guards. And one of the guards says, man, I had a dream 
He's telling this other guy, he said, I got a dream. And Gideon's overhearing him. And the guy goes, I had a dream that there was this cake. Not just any cake, a barley cake. By the way, barley cakes were for the poor. The poorest of people ate barley cakes because barley was the poorest thing available. And so, keep that in mind. So remember who Gideon is. And that says, I had a dream of this big barley cake rolled down and hit a tent, this big old tent, and it just leveled the tent out. And he goes, what do you think that means? And the guy says, well, that's got to be Gideon. That's got to be this army that, that I hear about. They're going to annihilate us. And God allowed Gideon to hear that. God allowed Gideon's uh, friend, the servant, one of 300, to hear that. And they're pumped. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. And so they go back, and God allows this opportunity for help them in their faith. Like I said, this barley cake is going to do this. And he went back and told them all, hey, this is what's going to happen. And he says, guys, guess what? We're going to go attack them because they had a dream about a cake. At some point, don't you think the 300 had to look at Gideon and go, you're insane. And he even gets more insane this because not only do I see their characters, a 300 of faith, there were 300 that were willing to follow when you get to verses 16, it says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put a pitcher in every man's hand, an empty, excuse me, in every, a trumpet in every man's hand, and an empty pitcher with lamps in them. Okay, so these guys were willing. They don't just had faith. They're willing to follow. He says, Guys, here's your weapons. You've got a trumpet, and I'm going to give you a pitcher and put a candle in it. Go get them. All right, that sounds good, doesn't it? He says, But these are not only weapons. But you've got to do something with the weapons I give you. And he says, what I want you to do, I want you to break the pitcher, and I want you to yell as loud as you can, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Okay, so you're thinking to yourself, if you only got 300, the last thing you want to do is for them to see you coming. You want to be like little assassins, you know, sneak in, kill, and get out. No, you're going to announce your presence that you're here. And not only are you going to announce your presence, you're going to take 300 and break them down to even further Three groups of a hundred? And you want us to proclaim to them that we're here and we're yelling the sword of the Lord and of Gideon? I'm telling you, I would look at Gideon saying, dude, I'm with the 22,000 that's fearful right now. There's 22,001 that's fearful right now. But here's what these guys understood. Here's the character of this 300. They were willing to follow because they knew God gave their man the direction. And I see here... These 300 people, for all of them to follow, meant they knew how to follow. They already knew how to follow. Can I tell you what I think a problem is today in churches all across our country and Christians today? problem today is that some people don't make it spiritually because either they don't know how to follow or they're not willing to follow. They don't know how to follow or they're not willing to follow. You don't see these warriors saying, we weren't afraid, we passed the test, let us go fight him like that we should. No, no, they said, okay, the battle's the Lord's, we have faith in God, Gideon, God's obviously giving you presence and, and giving you power, let's do that. And I love verse 17. Verse 17 is a picture of the local church in Christ being the head like I talked about. Look what it says in verse 17. This, and Gideon said, look on me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that, look, as I do, so shall ye do. He says, here's what I want you to do, guys. I'm not going to send you. I want you to follow me. Boy, that sounds a whole lot like Luke, chapter number 5, 
verses 7 through 9. Jesus looks at Peter and says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter never knew what it meant to be a fisher of men. To our knowledge, Peter had never been much of a vocal person, period. But Jesus says, but you've got to follow me. I know you don't understand, Peter. Follow me. And I see that, and I've underlined my Bible, as I do, so shall ye do. And you know why? It's got to be Christ at the head, because what Christ did on earth is what we should do here on earth. That's how the church should run. That's how we should live our lives. As Christ did, so shall we do. And we see this and understanding it. And so we see they obeyed in verse 22, and it's awesome because they did that. They cracked the, they cracked the pictures, they yelled the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and it says the Midianites got so scared, so messed up, they started killing themselves. Now the guys in the army are probably like, yeah, I got this figured out. Let them kill themselves. Okay? You say, Phil, how in the world is that possible? Can I tell you something? Only God could do that. Only God could do that. I think sometimes we miss those moments. You ever have that moment in your life where you look at it and say, man, that's how to be God. I, I don't know how. It's not logical. I can't explain it. That's a God thing. That's got to be God. That's what this was right here. Because they were willing to have faith, they were willing to follow, and they were willing to obey. And then lastly, I see the commitment of the 300. We won't take all the time to go into it, but can I tell you something? Out of the 135,000, all but 15,000 of the Midianites killed each other. All but 15,000. Okay, so 15,000 are left. The 15,000 realize and they're running away from 300, which I still think is funny. They're running away, 15,000 of them. But you know what I see here? Any average army would have said this. Any average 300 would have said, hey, <laughs> we've won. We've done enough. Not what these guys said. You see their commitment to the end. Chapter 8, if you read it, you know what they say? There's still 15,000 left. There's still some many left. Let's go kill them. Let's go get them. Let's go charge after them. You still got 300 against 15,000. And they said, no, no, let's not let them escape. And I like chapter 8, verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over he and the 300 men that were with him. You know what that means? He didn't lose one. Gideon didn't lose any. None of them died. But also I see something about these guys. Look what it says. It says they were with him. And look what the next word says, faint. Now, that faint there means they were tired. They, that means struggling. That means they were worn out. But I'm so thankful that's not where the verse stops. It doesn't say that they were tired and they were worn out and they are faint and they stopped. Look what the rest of it says. They were faint yet pursuing. You know what that means? They weren't going to quit. Let me ask you a question. Have your problems in life caused you to get so tired, so frustrated, so worn out that when it comes to serving God, you just want to quit? Or can you say, good thing about the character of these guys, faint yet pursuing. What a wonderful testimony it would be for our church to say, you know what, what about those believers? Yeah, they're faint, they're tired, but they're still pursuing. They're committed to finish. They're committed to finish the task. They didn't want to stop being active. And I close with this thought. 
You know what's great about what we do for God? Is that we do it for God. Say, what do you mean? If I'm not careful, I'll get up here and I'll preach for you. I'll get up here and preach because I know it would make my mom and dad proud if I preached. I get up here and preach because I'm doing it because I'm doing it because I know it would make my family happy. I know it would make my friends happy. Can I tell you something? Whatever we do for God, we have to do it for God only. Because if we don't do what we do for God, if what you're doing in your place, you're not doing it for God, you're doing it for fame, tradition, what your parents would think, or any of this other stuff, you will get tired and you'll stop. And you can put a period after faint. You won't keep pursuing. Here's something else to think about. And this is true in my life. When I quit doing what I do for God and I start doing it for other things, I start complaining and griping about what I do. You don't see people serving God complaining about what they do for God if they're doing it for Him. You know what you do see? People doing things in the work of God but not doing it for God, and all they do is gripe and complain about it. Be active, be faint, but be pursuing. And remember at the end, we're not doing it for us. We're doing it for Him. Let's stand together if you would.